Think of this. Supposing the universe came into existence at the Big Bang, and then billions of years later, self-aware consciousness, intelligent life, appears briefly, just for, I don't know, a couple of million years maybe, on a little planet in one of the galaxies. That's us. And then it flickers out again, perhaps because we don't get to grips with climate change or, or whatever. And then the universe, as it was before, continues afterwards with no consciousness or intelligence, neither good nor bad, it's just neutral. But if in that little brief period of intelligence, of awareness, the sum of good is greater than the sum of bad, then that means that the entire history of the universe is a good thing. But if the sum of bad outweighs the sum of good, then it's a bad thing that the universe existed. And so we have a duty to make the history of the universe good. Philosopher Anthony Grayling is one of the foremost thinkers of our time. He's master of the New College of the Humanities, an independent college in London that he founded in 2011. He's written and edited over 30 books on philosophy, always making a case for the role it can play in our lives. He's a frequent contributor to all the major broadsheets and, in addition, he sits on the editorial boards of several academic journals. A.C. Grayling was a fellow of the World Economic Forum for several years and has judged many top literary awards, including the Booker, twice. In his latest book, The Good State, Grayling argues that many democracies around the globe, from Britain to the US and Australia, are derived from the Westminster model, all of which, he argues, are at risk from the absence or decay of the fundamental principles of democracy. I'm Georgina Godwin, and I sat down with A.C. Grayling earlier this year, before the pandemic, for The Big Interview. A.C. Grayling, welcome to The Big Interview. Oh, thank you. Anthony, what's the C for? Clifford. It's a family name because of the Welsh bit of our ancestry. My Welsh granny came from Llanechli, and I'm a very proud possessor of a, a rugby jersey from the Llanechli rugby team. Despite those Welsh antecedents, you ended up in Africa. Well, yes. Well, my father was working for um, Standard Chartered Bank in what is now Zambia. At that time, when I was born there, it was northern Rhodesia. Southern Rhodesia, or what is now Zimbabwe, a very different place, actually, because southern Rhodesia was a colony. So expats who went to settle have farms and, and that kind of thing. But uh, other parts of Africa, the bit that we were in, and also Nyasiland, which became Malawi, they were full of expats rather than settlers, and I suppose that's what we were, really. Mm. My father loved it, though, because he went to Africa as a bachelor before the Second World War and fell in love with it. He was rather an outdoor sort of character, played a lot of rugby and cricket and all that. And then after the war, he, because of the war, I suppose, he became a very, very enthusiastic game preservationist. My mother hated it. She was terrified of snakes, spiders, Africans. And the one thing and the only thing that... that kept her sticking to it was that you could have lots of servants there. And I suppose that, I mean, because having grown up in Zimbabwe, I, I know how that feels and it can make you feel a little divorced from your parents. 
Oh, tremendously. Gosh, yes, I hardly knew them at all, really. And I was very, very fond of the servants who looked after me. In fact, when I was very little, it was a discovery that all the nice people in the warm, lovely-smelling part of the house, which was the kitchen, Mm. very different from the rather cold, quiet part of the house where these unpleasant people were, kept telling you to shut up, Mm. (laughs) that that I was more like the latter physically than than like the former. It was a discovery that I didn't have black skin because it never occurred to me to think about what colour skin I had uh, (laughs) until a certain point. What point was that? When did you realise that you weren't black and and realise actually what the system was about because although Zambia wasn't a a colony you were aware of colonisation you'd been to school in Zimbabwe Oh certainly yes no I think I was I was very little I mean probably before I was three or you know two or something when I made that uh, discovery but the, the sense of the tremendous unfairness and the racism. And my mother was a terrible racist. I mean, she was really, really awful. My father wasn't at all. Uh, that kicked in a little bit later on, but it made me very aware, I think. So uh, any kind of political awareness, interest in human rights and civil liberties kicked in pretty early. Desmond Tutu said, <laughs> when the missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes. When we opened them, we had the Bible and they had the land. Um, uh, Now, of course, Christianity is absolutely huge in that part of Africa. And that is something that you must have been very aware of as a child. Now, we know that you've written many, many books on religion. You are not religious yourself. In 2013 two books on religion, in fact, The God Argument, The Case Against Religion and For Humanism and The Good Book, A Secular Bible. Looking at the poorest and the most challenged parts of Africa, of the world, sometimes it seems that God is all people have. Yes, that's true. Um, If you can have something to repose hope in, in the afterlife, perhaps, that you'll get your rewards then, things will be adjusted. But, you know, if the effort to give people that hope is a conscious one so that they don't ask for too much in this world, then it could be conceived as a kind of contract in a way, which I think very often it is. I find it uh, hard to separate all the claims of religion from the subjective necessities that people feel when they come to review their reasons for believing. Of course, most people believe because they're sort of brainwashed into it really as children before they've had an opportunity to reflect on it rationally. But later when they do, I think the, the kind of psychological investment in having that safety net or that sense of hope that we were talking about earlier, those sorts of things are very powerful drivers keeping people adhering to the faith. Now, my family were completely unreligious, and we didn't have any religion in my childhood at all. I really encountered it first at school, and it didn't really seem to me very serious until later on. And only then, when I realized the impact that religion has on society. You know, in my childhood, the Irish folk were still very poor and very backward because they had such huge families and this was something that the church had really impressed upon them. It's a tragic thing when you consider how much of a, of a ball and chain around people's ankles religious faith can be, mm. despite 
the things that you've mentioned, which is the hope, the solace that people can get out of it as well. And the comfort for the bereaved. And you would know about that because, of course, you had a terrible tragedy when you were just 19. But then you see um, the outlook that, that I have, the humanistic outlook, which is one that predicates itself on the thought that personal, social, human relationships with one another, if they're based on sympathy and generosity, on concern for our fellows, I find that that's a much richer and much more comforting thing than, you know, praying to a supernatural agency who, after all, has inflicted the pain on you if he or she or it exists. Yes. So, no, no, I, I think the kind of solace that you get from your ethics, your sense of the fact that death, and tragedy, pain, loss are parts of life, that one has to address them with courage if one can. One has to recognize that uh, other people's experiences are very similar to one's own and that if you can talk about these things and by the way for a very very long time I didn't talk about what had happened in my family I suppose it'd be like Lady Bracknell you know if you lose one person it seems like a tragedy if you lose two it seems like carelessness and I didn't really talk about it much until I realized that there were so many people who have just as bad or much worse experiences and that if you were open about it then they would know that you understood how they felt about it and actually that's paid off a lot I mean with friends who have had loss in their lives to be able to convey to them that you really do understand and really do sympathize with them I think it makes a big difference to them mm. but this is very much on the human level that's why I, I think humanism is such a it's rather a beautiful outlook because it's really about human affection and human contact mm. uh, your sister was 26 years old when she was murdered in South Africa and that really led to the death of your mother yes so almost immediately did yes my mother was unwell she had a heart complaint in fact she'd been unwell for quite a long time which which is one reason uh, I suppose I never really got to know her properly because she was a very difficult, irritable, um, bad-tempered person. I think probably because she was unwell for so long. Mm. Anyway, she, she was unwell and this awful thing that had happened to my sister was just so shocking for my parents and my, my mother died shortly afterwards. So you can imagine for my father... It was devastating. It happened that he lost his own mother, my Welsh granny, earlier that same year, and then uh, his daughter and his wife. And so he was in a, in a frightful state. And my brother, my, my very, very dear brother, and I had to do a lot of mopping and propping, as you can imagine, before we really got round to thinking how we were coping with things. Mm. And our reactions have been very different. My brother, who is a wonderful chap, really, and who did all the heavy lifting on that, he subsequently became very depressed. My reaction was to say, you know, let's see if we can't somehow put back into the world, since the world has taken away such, you know, such a big thing, try to put back into the world something of value. And that is exactly what you've been doing. I mean, through your academic career, through your writing, I think it's over 30 books now, isn't it? I'm afraid it's nearly 40. <laughs> it's like I'm over prolific, I'm afraid. Uh, run me through the, the various sort of highlights, if you like. How old were you when you were first published? Oh, uh, so it must have been, well, I think, around about late 20s or, or about 30. Uh, you know, after these uh, tragedies had happened, I managed to get things a bit stalled for a while because while I was sorting myself out and trying to kind of repair, you know, the emotional side of life, I met and, and fell for a, a young woman who very soon afterwards got pregnant. And I thought that this was the universe giving back what it had taken away. So, so started a family 
very early. So everything got stalled for a few years. I had to take a bit longer finishing my higher education than... It sounds like you're apologising for not having achieved quite enough, <laughs> quite soon enough. No, I, I, I'm just reflecting as I speak to you that, that uh, there's also a strand in this of thinking that it, it did me some good in the sense that I, I took a bit longer over, you know, finishing my master's degree and then getting my doctorate and so on than, than other people do. Other people might finish, say, three or four years mm. earlier than I did. Although uh, it happens, actually, that while I was doing my doctorate at Oxford, I needed a book which didn't exist. And so I wrote it. This was an introduction to philosophical logic because I needed a sort of compendium of these very core concepts. And it turned out to be a tremendous success, this book, because it was used as a great crib by generations of Oxford students who called it the Holy Grailing. That's about <laughs> the closest I'm ever going to get to sainthood, I think. <laughs> of course, you've stayed in academia because you've now started your own university. It's the New College of the Humanities. It's a private university. You set it up in 2012. That's correct, yes. So I, I taught at Oxford for quite a long time and then went to Birkbeck College at London where I became Professor of Philosophy. And at both places I had very good students and some of them tremendously gifted and very dedicated in what they were doing. But others, what we were doing seemed to be not terribly important to them. It sort of ran off their backs rather as water does off a duck, you know. And I wanted, tremendously want an education to make a difference to people. I want them to be very switched on by it, to, to be alerted to possibilities and depths. Now, the old Oxbridge model was, as you know, the tutorial model, the one-to-one -one discussion between a pupil and a, a don. And that's a wonderful way. It's really the gold standard way of getting stuck into a subject and understanding it. Mm. So I wanted to preserve that, that style of pedagogy. I also wanted to make a statement about the humanities, about philosophy and literature and, and history and, you know, that great conversation of humankind, really, about things that matter against the tsunami of people rushing to do science and technology and mathematics and, and, and vocational subjects like business studies, all of which, by the way, are very good and very important. And I think anybody who has a real talent and interest in science, for example, which is a wonderful human achievement, they should go for it. But I also wanted to assert the importance of the humanities mm. needed by people who are going to do things that are creative and you know, be thought leaders and social entrepreneurs and people who are interested in ideas, because ideas matter. They are the wheels of history. So I thought having failed to persuade colleagues of mine, both at Oxford and at London, to introduce some changes that might lead us in that direction, I thought, well, I better start my own college. And on the day that I announced this to my then wife, she said to me, haven't you got enough to do already? <laughs> there was quite a lot of controversy surrounding this. You were attacked for being elitist. Mm. Yes, and my answer to that was there's nothing wrong with elitism providing you're not exclusive. I mean, everybody wants their surgeon to have been trained at mm. an elite institution or your airline pilot. So there's nothing wrong with that, really. The controversy died down very quickly, I have to say, and I think people did realise that this really was and is, you know, a sincere endeavour. And one of my visiting professors at the college, Stephen Pinker, a well-known um, character, he said to me, what explains the outburst of controversy is a joke, and the joke is, how many professors does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, change? <laughs> I, think, I think that was the, <laughs> the, the you know, a nub of the problem. Why is it important that philosophy is accessible? 
Well, you know, I've, I've had a wonderful, wonderful privilege and opportunity, which is to be able to devote a lifetime to reading, to study, to thinking about ideas, to coming into contact with great minds of the past and of the present, to visit all those spaces of, of ideas and opportunities that history and the history of ideas provides. And not that I want to impose particularly on other people, but I want to say, look, here is a great budget great resource that we could feed into our public conversation and lots and lots of ideas and suggestions here that people could make use of and also to you know put a point of view as part of that conversation so those people who have read and who have studied and who have come across all sorts of interesting ideas if they have the the interest to put those out into the public debate i think they should because it's a, a way of repaying the opportunity that we've had to learn so much wonderful stuff mm. What would you say is at the very heart of philosophy? Well, there are two great, great questions, really, at the very heart of philosophy. One is, what is this world? What is the ultimate nature of reality? And what are we in this reality? So trying to make sense of our experience of our existence and of what's around us. And out of that, of course, has sprung the natural sciences and the study of the past and so on. Mm. And the other great question is, what matters in what exists. What's of value? What, what are the real goods? You know, what are the things that are really important in life and in the universe? So the question of reality and the question of value. These have been the fundamental questions in philosophy, and they've been great drivers of research and inquiry on the one hand, and debate and discussion on the other hand, about how we are to live, what kind of people we should be, what ethical values, that's to say, values of character and life, because ethics is not quite the same thing as morals. Mm -hmm. You can see that by looking at the etymology of the term. So the word ethics comes from ethos, ancient Greek, means character. So the ethical question is, what sort of person should I be and how should I live? The moral question is about responsibilities and keeping faith, not telling too many fibs and that sort of thing in our interpersonal relationships. And you use all of this, of course, working for many different campaigns, often to do with human rights. Why do we mistreat each other? Well, uh, the, everything has a multiple set of causes. And uh, our propensity to tribalism, to uh, valorizing more those who are close to us and those who are far away, anxiety, fear, fear of the different, fear that people will somehow upset our own chances for being comfortable in life. There are all sorts of reasons why this happens. But, you know, one must bear in mind a very important point, which is that the vast majority of human interactions every second of every minute of every day are good ones. The reason why you don't see a headline, I often use this example, you don't see a headline in the front page of the national newspaper saying shopkeeper is polite to customer. This is because it happens too often to be news. But what we do see on the front page are all the conflicts and the pain and the suffering. And this is because those things worry us, rightly worry us. But they are the minority avocation of human beings because you know we're a social species and we need one another we need to, to be friendly to our neighbors in the human story mm. and by and large we are mm. and the thing to do really is to try to encourage that and to explain that there are lots of different ways in which people are entitled to live you know to be accommodating and welcoming 
tolerant of diversity in that way is a really good beginning point for living a life of one's own, which other people accept, and for accepting other people's choices. Mm. Sadly, though, for some, that is not how it works. And I wonder what has fueled this rise in popularism throughout the world. And if people like Trump and Modi have made it worse, have made people behaving badly worse. Well, there you see you have people who capture the levers, the instruments of power in societies and drive an agenda. And they do it on the basis of persuading at least enough people that they have the solution to the problems that those people are experiencing. And in most systems, and you've cited the example of the United States and of India, both those systems have electoral systems which enable people who can capture just enough of a populist groundswell to get the levers of power, even against the majority will of the populace. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is a really serious problem with our democracies today, because they have been, many of them, manipulated into providing platforms for programs that I think most rational people, they reflect on it, will see are not acceptable. Yeah, and you write about this in your book. I think that particular part comes in your chapter on the subversion of democracy. You also write about Brexit. Now, Britain tore itself apart. I know that you're an ardent Remainer. How do we Remainers remain true to our values without wishing the worst for our country? Well, I mean, the auguries about what is likely to happen to our economy and to our society outside the EU are, are not good. And the prognostications even by some Brexiters themselves are that it will take many, many years for things to right themselves again and to get back to a situation which probably wouldn't be as good as if we had stayed in the EU. But my feeling is that this is an historic mistake. It's a very, very wrong turn and that therefore we shouldn't give up campaigning about our EU membership. We should aim to rejoin. We should aim to, to keep the argument going. And there is, as improbable and unlikely as it may actually be, nevertheless a route to getting back much sooner than people think. And, and it's the following. If you look at the political spectrum in the United Kingdom, you will see that from the centre rightwards, the top amount of support is at the most generous about 35 or 40% of the voting population. In the last election in December 2019, the parties of the right, the Conservative, Brexit and UK parties, between them polled 29% of the total electorate. So to say that they could command maybe 35 or 40% is to be very generous to them. Mm -hmm. But what does that entail? Well, that means that from the centre leftwards, Labour, Lib Dems, Greens, Plaid and so on, that commands at minimum of 60 to 65 percent of the voting population. So next question is, why is it therefore that we have conservative governments for more years than we do Labour governments? And the answer is, it's because the conservatives are united and the left is very divided. So if all the parties are now in opposition were to make a united front, even just for the next election, just for one election, and go back to all their tribal squabbling afterwards. If they were to do it just for one election, on a platform of electoral reform, because our first-past-the-post voting system here is precisely what has given 100% of power in the country on the basis of 29% of the electorate, which is, by any standard, completely unacceptable. So if they were to do that on that platform, they could win the next election. And if they were to do so 
then the opportunity of having another say on EU membership or renegotiating our position with our EU friends and partners could come back into focus. And I think, given that there is a natural majority in this country to be part of the European Union, that we could then rejoin. You make the point in your latest book, The Good State on the Principles of Democracy, you make the point that a parliamentarian from the 1870s could recognise the Westminster system today. So is it time to just absolutely go back to first principles? I think what we need to do is recognise that if you want to reform everything all at once, you're not going to reform anything ever. (laughs) You know, if you chuck the kitchen sink in there with your reform programme, it just won't happen. And I think we need to go step by step. Uh, the, The first step is to put our electoral system right. And here's a very simple way of explaining that. In the first past the post electoral system, sometimes called a plurality electoral system, suppose you have a constituency of 100 people and uh, you have 10 people standing for election, eight of whom get 10 votes, one of whom gets nine votes, and one gets 11 votes. Well, the person who gets 11 votes goes to Parliament, and 89 voters are completely unrepresented. This is a very distorting Mm. system. In America, the only directly elected body in the system there is the House of Representatives, the lower house of Congress. That uses the the first-past-the-post system. They also, of course, have a lot of gerrymandering, which is the way they organize their congressional district boundaries, the constituency boundaries. And as a result, the vast majority of seats never change hands. This kind of system produces a two-party system. The two parties polarize. The democracy turns out to be a competition between them as to who can get the levers of government. One of them will win on this system. And therefore, instead of democracy being for the people, that is everybody, all of us, it's for the people who won that one side of the argument. And this is what's gone so badly wrong with democracies around the world that they've you know, got all these fine-sounding slogans about being by the people, for the people. But in fact, they're not. They're really competitions for capture of government by factions. And the result is we've seen growing inequality. We've seen social welfare being the first thing that gets cut whenever taxes have to be cut. We've seen a lot of problems. And these problems are best addressed, really, by putting our electoral system right first and then going on to look at the other constitutional aspects of how we do things. Mm. So proportional representation. And then you have another three things that you say are really important. That's the voting age should be dropped to 16, that we should have a written constitution. And when I say we, you're talking about Westminster-style democracies globally. And also, and crucially, I'm thinking of the United States here, we should separate functions and powers of the executive, legislature and the state. Yes, exactly. So the lowering the voting age, I mean, here in the United Kingdom where we're sitting, at the age of 16, you can join the army, you can get married, you're already liable for taxation if you're earning over a certain limit. And and these are responsibilities and obligations of adulthood. I think if secondary education up to the point of 16 focused a bit on the responsibility of voting and of knowing about what's happening in politics and government, then there should be a kind of political bar mitzvah at the age of 16 when you are given the vote and you can be a participant in decisions about the state in which you live. 
Mm. I also think, by the way, the voting should be compulsory, as it is in Belgium and in Australia, because it's a civic duty. Mm. It's very important that since we benefit from being members of a society, we should step up and play that role, just and as we should uh, you know, obey the laws and drive on the correct side of the road mm. and so forth. And people died for it. Yes, exactly, exactly. It was, a, it was a long, hard struggle. And as you would expect, I wrote a book about that <laughs> a number of years ago uh, to, to explain that in the hope that if people, if only people would realize how long it took and with what terrific effort to get a vote if only they would just go on YouTube and just look at the queues of people in South Africa when finally apartheid came to an end and they were given a chance they would see how much this really matters and not to be flippant about it and trivialize it and disregard it but you mentioned some other things there you know we have an uncodified constitution in in the UK Canada has an uncodified constitution I think it's important that at least the very central aspects of how the state is to work so the electoral system of course one thing but the other thing is the nature and limits of the powers of government offices what we expect of people either elected or appointed officials in our state and what they cannot overstep because at the moment in a situation like the UK's we have a parliament which has unlimited power a sovereign parliament back in 1882 Virginia Woolf's father Sir Leslie Stevens said if parliament legislated that blue-eyed babies should be killed then that is the law and there is no higher law that could stop them doing that and he said following on what John Stuart Mill famously said well it's we're all gentlemen so we wouldn't dream of doing that and he was speaking 50 years before the Nazis came to power in Germany and did precisely the analogous thing so you know we need to be able to make perfectly clear what the powers and the limits of powers are a constitution belongs to the people. It's the people saying to those that they're going to send to do the work of, of government on their behalf, this is what you, you can do. This is a temporary license we're giving you. You're answerable to us. And here are the rules. At the moment, we don't have them in the UK. And in too many of the other Westminster model states in the world, and there are about 50 of them, that is the case also. Mm. And all of these ideas contained within this book. Anthony, I'm a little depressed now, I have to say. <laughs> I want to ask, really, what, what is it all for? Well, you may remember the wonderful story told by Herodotus in his histories of um, the great sage, one of the seven sages of Greece, Solon, who went on a visit to King Croesus of Lydia, by far the richest person of ancient times. And King Croesus uh, thought, because he was a king and so rich, that he must automatically be the happiest person on the planet. And Solon said, well, I don't know whether you're, you're happy, but I do know you should think about it, you know, because of the brevity of human life, the fact that a human life is less than a thousand months long. And I often say to my pupils, I say to them, only consider, unless you party a lot, you're going to be asleep for 300 of those 960 months. And another 300, you know, you're going to be in the supermarket or waiting for a bus. So time is limited. There's no time to waste. We should make our own lives and those of our fellows and of the world at large, if we can, a bit better than we found it. So we'll get our sleeves rolled up and get stuck in and do things that we can really stand up we can make a good case for saying this will be of benefit and if we can do that then we have made our lives worthwhile and there is a way of generalizing this think of this supposing the universe came into existence at the big bang and then billions of years later self-aware consciousness intelligent life appears 
briefly, just for, I don't know, a couple of million years maybe, on a little planet in one of the galaxies. That's us. And then it flickers out again, perhaps because we don't get to grips with climate change or, or whatever. And then the universe, as it was before, continues afterwards with no consciousness or intelligence, neither good nor bad, it's just neutral. But if in that little brief period of intelligence, of awareness, the sum of good is greater than the sum of bad, then that means that the entire history of the universe is a good thing. But if the sum of bad outweighs the sum of good, then it's a bad thing that the universe existed. And so we have a duty to make the history of the universe good. A.C. Grayling, thank you so much. Many, many thanks to A.C. Grayling. His latest book, The Good State, on the principles of democracy, is published by One World. The big interview is produced and edited by Yolene Goffin. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.